0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about what McMaster is doing. It's only about a week until university would have started. Time has gone. They have had time to figure out their plan. What is that plan? How are classes going to be handled? We'll hear from the Dean of Students about what will be done at the school this fall. We're also going to be talking about the boycotts down in Florida about the NBA uh, games put off today in protest. How is this going to play? How is this going to help? Will it have an effect? We'll talk about that. And there are some numbers out about music sales. They may surprise you. What does this mean? What does this say about the music industry? Stick around.
1: Today on the Scott Radley show on 900 CHML. It's
0: not just the boys that are back. The girls are back. The teachers are back. The profs are back. The staff is back. It's last week of August. Supposed to be the time when people are rolling into university and getting ready to start. And and several months ago, back when this whole thing with COVID really happened and everything sort of became obvious that school was not going to be able to be done the way it always has been in the fall, my next guest joined me and talked about what the plans were for McMaster when September rolled around. And at that time, it was explained that most classes, there will be some exceptions where there will be some students on campus for some things, but most people, most students are not going to be on campus. Most of it will be online. And at that time, and again, we're talking early May, I think, last time he was on to talk about this, um, there were a lot of things that were already being figured out, some ambitious plans that were already in place, but there were still some things that were unknown. Obviously, it was still a work in progress. Well, as I say, now it's the last week of August. In a normal year, Westdale would be crawling with young people right now, moving into their housing spots, and the dorms would be starting to fill up. What is university going to be like this fall? Let me bring in Sean Van Kunit, who is the Associate Vice President of Students and Learning and the Dean of Students at McMaster. He joins us now. Sean, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me, Scott. I know I dragged you out of a meeting, so I am appreciative. No, um, no problem. I, I'm guessing the uh, the most obvious reality right now about how things are going to be different is probably it's very quiet down there at this point.
2: <laughs> yeah, campus is generally, you know, obviously it is it is a lot uh, quieter. Um, uh, nor- and, and Labor Day weekend falls about as late as it possibly can this year. So our move in uh, into residence would normally occur... I'm losing track of the days now. Yeah, it would normally occur uh, this coming weekend. And of course, that's that's not happening.
0: There is, um, last time we chatted, let me put it this way. Last time we chatted, there were a number of things that were still being worked out, obviously. I mean, it was still months away from school. And I want to start with the class delivery. Um, the plan, as I understand it, is has been that much of it is going to be done online. Most of it is going to be done online. We've heard as you have too, you're, you're a parent. We've heard lots of concerns from elementary and high school teachers about how they're going to be able to do this. University obviously is very different. Do you have the same concerns about delivering courses to students virtually, or do you think it's going to be pretty seamless?
2: Well, I'm sure, you know, with anything new, there, there will be a few hiccups, but I can tell you, and you know, this is an area that doesn't, uh, report directly into me, but I know that, uh, we've had about, you know, there there was uh, work being put into uh, online course development from from mid-march uh, because many the courses that were delivered in the spring and summer were online and and we made a decision uh, relatively early uh, and, and there's still there was still a ton of work to be done but there all summer all spring and summer uh, there's been a tremendous amount of effort being put into uh, not only developing the courses uh, for online delivery, but supporting the instructors, some of whom you know uh, would, would not have had the chance to deliver a course in that manner before. So um, certainly, uh, whether it's at Mac or any other university, that's a that's a question that, or a reasonable question for parents and students to have is what will this look like? How am I going to learn? Uh, is it going to be? Uh, can I learn effectively in this environment? And uh, so I think we're about as well prepared as we possibly can be at this point.
0: And ultimately, I mean, one of the huge differences, and it's not just age, but by the time you're in university, unlike, say, elementary school or high school, if you're a student in university, there's an expectation. It's on you. If you want to attend, if you want to pay attention, if you want to learn, it's there for you. It's up to you.
2: Yeah, certainly. And we're dealing with a different age cohort than the the K-12 system, obviously. And so I think, you know, uh, we're in a much—I would say—we're in a, a, a better place. It's, it's more uh, we're dealing with those challenges. We have the resources within the university. We have people with expertise, and it's not to say that there aren't isn't expertise within the boards or within the high schools. But we've got a, uh, there's an economies of scale I think that happen when we have uh, a lot of staff, a lot of instructors, a lot of horsepower behind this effort. Uh, to to get our courses online. And as you pointed out, our students are at a different point in their development where uh, they can make these decisions there. They may be, uh, you know, they're obviously further along in their education. And so uh, learning online may be a bit more uh, applicable to them as, you know, if you compare it to, you know, a a student, uh, a child in grade in in the early grades where it may be more
0: difficult. Who will be on campus? I mean, you obviously have courses. I mean, McMaster is renowned for medicine, for example, uh, and some of that stuff, you, it's really hard to do a lot of some of those medical learning procedures online. Will there be people, will there be students still doing labs and still on campus?
2: In a very limited sense. I believe the last thing I saw, there's about, maybe about two dozen, and this is out of thousands of courses that normally or that, that are being delivered. There's about two dozen that have We'll have some in-person component to them. Um, Our labs, there there are virtual virtual labs, virtual simulations that uh, faculties of of engineering and science, uh, health sciences, I believe, to an extent, uh, are able to to do to run online. Uh, So there will be some some students on campus more focused around research. Some of our grad students, uh, a limited number of upper-year students who have uh, again a limited in-person requirement to be on campus for an academic activity, but uh, it'll be a small fraction of what we would normally see on campus.
0: Going back again, when we chatted in early May, I think about your plans and the things you were starting to put in place, one of the real questions that a lot of people were having, especially first-year students who had been accepted to McMaster was, do I want to come and do I want to accept my my acceptance um, and do a first-year without the university experience that I may have had every other single year. And there was a lot of questions about how many would defer. What, what percentage of first years or do we know roughly, what percentage of first year students have accepted and what percent have put off their year for until maybe 2021?
2: Sure, yeah, that's a good question. It was a question we had at that time. We were un- uncertain, although even at that time I felt that um, you know if, if you're what are the options for a student where the job opportunities might be limited, where the travel opportunities are gonna be limited, you're gonna, my feeling was that they're gonna come and, and that's what's happened. So, uh, to give you some perspective, last year, in any year with a first year class of normally around 6,500 students, uh, we'll, in any year we'll have, last year we had about uh, 70, I believe it was uh, 70 deferrals. Um, and this year, uh, the last number I had was 109. So wow. it's, it's up, uh, but it's not uh, it's not up significantly. Uh, it's not something that's going to really impact things. Um, and so we we're actually in terms of registrations, which means when students actually register for courses and paying their tuition, we're up over last year in terms of our first year students. So um, so there are no worries there.
0: I mean, your points are well taken about what are the other options that you're going to do, but I'm still surprised by that. I, I really thought that the numbers would be higher of people saying, I want to do the full thing. And so, you yeah. know, I'm very surprised that they're that low.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I think, you know, I, I, every every family, every student is going to have a, their own thoughts and opinions on this. But I think generally students, they want to start, even if it's not an ideal circumstance, they want to get that university uh, program degree and experience going, even if the experience isn't, uh, what it normally would have been.
0: I was reading, uh, it's not about McMaster and I, for the life of me, can't remember off the top of my head now, what the university was. There were a couple of them that had had a lot of pushback from people about tuition fees mm-hmm. saying, why am I paying full tuition? If I'm not getting the typical full university experience, as we discussed, have you had any blowback or any pushback on people saying they want to find out why they're paying the same?
2: Yeah, there have been questions from from students and parents. It hasn't been a flood of questions. And I think every university has, has faced this in, in Canada and in North America. Um, and and so, you know, although it's a different experience, the, the investment we're putting into, again, as I mentioned uh, prior to the commercial, the investment in the online um, uh, courses, uh, it's probably increased in terms of uh, the investment we would normally put into the academic side. We still have the same, if not more, uh, instructors and teaching assistants. Um, we've reduced uh, other types of fees. So we the, we've reduced fees in athletics. The student unions have reduced some of their fees. I believe the the uh, so the bus pass fee, which is not an insignificant fee at the undergrad level, has been eliminated. I believe for the fall. So there are those types of costs that we're we're trying to look at and be conscious of. Um, but but certainly there are questions from some people. It's, it, I think it's a natural
0: question to have. If this works, and, you know, I mean, everyone who's a student there hopes it does. It, it, and let's assume it does. If everything works and the online stuff works really well and everyone, by the end of the day, says, you know, we're, we're pretty satisfied with how this went, could you see this being extended? And, you know, McMaster can only hold so many students on campus with dorms and everything else. Could you see this changing, though, and and, and down the road, allowing for an awful lot more students to be attending with a different, with an online version that we can say now, instead of X number of people in first year med school or first year geography, we can take double that as long as you're willing to do it online.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure it will, it will increase enrollment. I mean, there's still a requirement there around how, you know, we we want a a ratio of of instructors and teaching assistants to students that um, I'm not sure we want to, to go down a road where that is going to be warped uh too uh, too severely i think what we'll see is that you know we have we're going to learn that there are really great uh, aspects of online learning and teaching that we can take and and, and bring forward not only on, on the teaching and, and learning side but in our uh, in our service provision, provision as well in how we work uh you know do we need everyone with an office every day so i think there'll be opportunities to, to um, to do things differently when this is all said and done by taking the things we've learned and the, and the good things that come out of this and transport them into the future. Um, that's the way I see it.
0: One last thing and I'll let you get back. Uh, and that is, we know now that this semester is not going to be on campus. When is there a cutoff date? When does a decision have to be made about either January or, I mean, I guess January would be the one coming first, obviously. When does that have to be decided? Well,
2: uh, uh, we're going to be making a decision on that, and um, there's been conversations ongoing. As a meeting today, I was in discussing the winter. Uh, we'll be making a decision in September. It could be as early oh. as as mid September, uh, about January. People need to plan. We need to to understand how we're going to deliver courses and continue to deliver services, and so we can't we can't wait until you know November December to do that. So uh, at this time next month, for sure, um, we will. Uh, people
0: will know uh, where we're at in January. Sean Van Kunit, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley
1: Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: A couple hours ago, uh, around 4 o'clock, sometime between 4 and 5, the Milwaukee Bucks were supposed to be playing game 5 of a playoff series against the Orlando Magic. Except at game time, uh, neither team was on the court. Both decided to protest the shooting of a black man in Wisconsin this week by a police officer and they boycotted the game. And then an hour or so later, we learned that Houston and Oklahoma City were doing the same and then a third game tonight was cancelled or boycotted or postponed. We're not exactly sure what the right word is for that, but boycotted. And there's been all kinds of talk in the last 24 or 48 hours that the Toronto Raptors and Boston Celtics may do the same thing tomorrow and... Well, what does this do and what does this mean for the league going forward? I want to bring in Mike Ganter. He's the longtime excellent Toronto Raptors writer for the Toronto Sun who joins me now. Mike, how are you tonight?
1: Good, Scott. How you doing?
0: I'm okay. Uh, this is a, uh, we'll give him this. This is a bold statement.
1: Yeah, no. And it, it, I mean, you could see it coming. Um, we were on a, you know,
0: we do all our work.
1: It seems these, day on, these days on Zoom calls. Um, so we're on a Zoom call yesterday with uh, Fred Van Vliet and Norm Powell. And, uh, I mean, the, the first questions were about the, the Celtics, the, the coming series. And uh, Fred just, uh, uh, Van Vliet just said, uh, you know what, I'm not, I'm not in any frame of mind to talk about basketball right now. And he went right into, you know, we're not doing enough down here. We're, uh, we came down here to make a statement we've kept the we've kept the conversation going in terms of the social injustice that's going on in the world and especially in in the United States right now and uh we uh we just we we aren't getting enough done and um, something else has to be done something else and uh he started he started talking about boycotting and he actually mentioned Milwaukee actually and um i mean the bucks hadn't said anything about you know, boycotting, and then all of a sudden tonight at about or this afternoon at four o'clock, they don't come out of their room. I'll correct you a little bit. The Orlando Magic were on the floor. They they did come out and they were going to play the game, and then the, it was the Bucks that forced the issue and uh, and didn't come out. And uh, now here we are. They're, they're uh, all of there's a or T- uh, an NBA uh, meeting tonight, players only, in Orlando. Um, it's going to start at eight o'clock, and uh, they're going to decide what they're going to do going forward. And it could be the, this could be the end of the restart.
0: Well, you know, I was going to say to you, I was going to ask like, is this an effective thing? Is this an effective way to spread the message? And I suppose the answer to that is we don't know yet and it's too early to know yet. And we'll see if it's an effective tool, but even saying that if you simply boycott for a day and say, we're not playing game five, but we'll happily play game five tomorrow. It seems like it's not much of a point. It seems like no. the NBA players have almost put themselves in a position now, if they're going to make a real stand, that they have to do something even bigger than this. And maybe to your point, maybe saying, that's it, we're done with the bubble, we're going home.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely on the table tonight. I mean, um, there's a, there's already been reports, uh, you, me, and everybody else, we all tend to get our first little bit of NBA news from uh, uh, ESPN's Adrian Wo- Wojnarowski. And, He's been, he's already been told that that is very much on the table tonight, like a complete, uh, you know, shutdown. So we'll see what happens, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's serious times. And you're right. They, they like shutting down for one game, isn't the message that they're trying to send. And these guys are serious. I mean, there were a lot of them. A lot of those guys didn't want to come down initially. Um, a lot of them had to be talked into come going, going down to and playing in these games and, by basically, and justified it by saying, "Look, we can keep this message. We can keep it front and center. We can uh, we will have the TVs on us. We'll have uh, all eyes on us, and we can keep this at, at the forefront. And for the, for a little while, that that was the you know that worked. But then you know, as society tends to do, um, attention shifted elsewhere, and all of a sudden." you know the black lives matter uh message uh was was just you know black lives matters on the court and people weren't seeing it and it it wasn't it it just wasn't effective anymore and the players were seeing this and you know there were some were getting antsy before like long before Fred and uh, and, and Norm Powell spoke out yesterday and uh here we are today and uh like I said uh the NBA i'm sure is uh they're they're trying to do whatever they can to Find a way to keep uh, the players satisfied that they're that they are making mm-hmm. impactful change and uh, and get this thing done because and, that's, and
0: that that's Mike what that's what it where it, it becomes tricky right that's yes. where it becomes really difficult because so you've got Adam Adam Silver who's the commissioner who uh, I, I'm just drawing a complete blank what was the guy's name who used to own the Clippers Sterling um, yeah, David Stirl- who who North earned Donald, sorry, Donald, Donald Sterling. Sterling yeah so yeah. Adam Silver the commissioner earns all kinds of praise. Uh, right when he arrives on the in the job because he gets rid of Donald Sterling and everyone goes, look at that, look what a great thing he's done. But he's still a white commissioner and you really, in this circumstance, the white commissioner can't order the black players back to work. You've sort of, it flies exactly in the face of what they're talking about. So he sort of almost has to, I mean, I, I suppose he can negotiate, but he's basically on the sidelines as an observer at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the only we haven't heard from anybody within the nba about this other than to say that you know they were postponing these games um, i mean once once the bucks said they weren't playing the league went the league with the nba pa with the players association went, went ahead and announced that the remaining two games would be canceled now i mean that's all fine and dandy but it was already out that the the Houston Rockets and the Orlando Magic and the and the Lakers and the Portland Trailblazers, the four teams involved, had already decided to follow Milwaukee's lead and boycott. So I guess you know saying they're postponed as opposed to boycotting or boycotted, maybe you know the optics are a little better for the for the NBA. But I mean this is this is a this is a player led, player driven league, and if they decide that you know. Their priority is making sure the social justice, uh, social injustice is, or or social injustice is uh, is fought, and that they're part of it,
0: and and that is the priority, and not playing the rest of this NBA season. Then that's what's going to happen. Mike, here's some. I said a moment ago that it gets tricky. It gets tricky for the league. It gets tricky as well for the players. And you just mentioned it because this thing. Where this thing comes back, right? If if they leave now and leave the bubble, that's making a very strong statement. Year is done. We're not coming back. We're fed up with this. But like in the NHL, players don't get paid in the playoffs. If they then come back when the money is flowing again, there will be comments, I'm sure, I guarantee it, that say, well, you were fine to stand up against injustice when it didn't cost you money, but now that paychecks are affected... You're gonna come back. this is it's, it's tricky on so many levels for how you do this and if you're trying to make your point not to, to make your point and, and not make a mess of it.
1: Yeah, I mean I'll, I'll say this about about the money situation. They if they if they do can this the rest of this season, um, the the league takes a huge hit because they've got a TV contract that they're not going to be able to honor. And that money is going to go away, and that money is paying next year's salaries. So yeah, it there is going to be they're going to they're hurt. They they're not just hurting the league; they're hurting themselves. And and you know, in in essence, taking money out of their own pockets if they go this route. And and but again, I don't think this is this has never been about money for them. I mean, you can say you can say they're all millionaires and they're set for life. Not all of them are, believe me but um you know there's a vast majority there's a good number of them are going to be set for life but they're uh, they're they're giving up their they're going to be giving up their own money here too it's not just this isn't just uh um uh a uh, sort of an empty um uh, pledge here they're mm-hmm. they're going mm-hmm. ahead they're giving up their money it's going to come like if the league loses money the salary or the salaries that players will get next year will not be what they were so yeah, it's it's not um, it, it, they're going to hurt themselves here too for sure. And it, it's, again, I, I just it's it's the priority, right? I mean, a lot of them, a lot of them, a lot of the players, some of the players decided not to come at all because they felt the need to stay home and fight this fight, and they thought they could do more there. And uh, now, I mean, we, we talked with Pascal Siakam today, for instance, and he admits he's like, he's, he's having second thoughts. You know, did, did he make the right decision?
0: Let me ask you a, a broader question than this, Mike, about, about sports and about the, you know, t- taking actions like this. So look, there are going to be people listening right now who are 1000% behind the players in this action. And there are going to be people who say, come on, it's just, you know, it's sports play the game, whatever, yeah. however you want to, whatever side you want to take, that's fine. You can have your opinion. But according to sports illustrated, uh, viewership for the NBA is down 30% this year. And I I do wonder, and I, I'm not the only one wondering this. I was reading something in Slate today where people are saying, you know, you wonder if pe- people tune into sports as an escape a lot mm-hmm. of the time from daily life. You do your job, you're out in the world, it's you know, it's all the grind every day, and you want to go to something that's mindless and that you can escape from those things. And now you can't because now all of a sudden the NBA is got those issues going on it's a bigger issue than this now does it affect the nba not just immediately but does this have a broader issue on tv and on how people see sports and how people see the nba and whether they want to watch it at all yeah
1: i, I, I really don't have the answer to that i do know that uh the nba um the nfl uh major league baseball their their games tonight are being canceled already they're, they're following suit the nhl is going ahead but like they're they're not. I think they're going to have a um, a moment of silence or a moment of uh, reflection, or I'm not sure what they're calling it. But anyway, the the NHL is going to go ahead. I, I really don't know if this comes back and 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 bites the league as a whole. Um, but I mean, if you're asking me, it's it's I I. I admire the fact that they're standing up for you know a priority that isn't just you know their bottom their 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 bottom line or their pockets. They're 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 putting their money where or they're putting their uh, their principles where they're in place of their pocketbooks, and uh, I I thoroughly admire that. And uh, I again I can't say if it's going to have you know ramifications down the road or uh, if this is. You know, people are going to start looking at the NBA differently, but I, uh, I got to say, I,
0: uh, I admire it. If I had to guess right off the bat, I would say that the people who love the NBA and love the players and what they stand for are going to love them a lot more after this. And those mm-hmm. that weren't interested in the beginning are going to be even less interested and probably you just like everything else seemingly in the world these days, you're just going to dig people's heels in even deeper and broaden the divide between us
1: yeah i mean i've had, I've had tons of you know we've we've been writing since they got back in the bubble um the players and are you know they've been rather they've been forcing the issue they've they they've they've refused to talk about basketball in order to talk about uh the issues that they want to talk about and so we've been writing them and but and when we write them um you know you get you get feedback and uh, I, the feedback. Some of the feedback just blows me away. It's just like, you know, uh, I've been an NBA fan for 30 years, and um, I'm not going to listen to this crap. I don't want to hear this. I'm done with. I'm done with the NBA. For all I care, uh, you know, they can rot in hell. I mean, it, like that's the that's a lot of the stuff that you're getting back when you when you write this. Uh, I don't understand it. I mean, I I think it's just common decency that you know. You look out for your fellow man, but uh, apparently, um, bringing these types of issues into sports uh, is is having a, a, a rather uh, strong, strong effect on uh, some people's uh, future sporting uh, interests.
0: Mike Ganter from the Toronto Sun. You can read him every well. I was going to say every day, probably five, six, seven, ten times a day these days online. Uh, Mike, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks,
1: Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: So let me tell you a story. And this is a story I think that many, many, many of you, you can change the location, you can change the date. Story is going to be basically the same. And it's way back when I was just a wee little lad with a head full of thick, luxurious hair. tells you how long ago it was. And my six foot five frame was toting around all of about 175 pounds. It was a regular thing to go downtown. In my case, to Sam, the record man on young street in Toronto and buy music records first, then years later, cassettes, then uh, CDs. And as I say, I'm guessing almost everybody who is of a certain age, has a similar story to tell. Maybe not in Toronto, maybe a different location, probably here in Hamilton. Buying music was just something we did. And on top of that, it was something that had great value because you had to save up your allowance or your pay or whatever else to go get that record or records that you would heard on the radio and you really, really wanted that was just out or you'd heard that your latest band was coming out with their new album and so you had to rush down and get it before it sold out. Well, I am telling you all this because, as I said a moment ago, I saw some numbers today that I found to be honestly shocking. Uh, They're from Nielsen Music, which charts Canadian music sales. Here you go. This year compared to last year, CD sales down 53.3%. They've been cut in half. Digital album sales down 19.4%. Digital track sales, individual songs, down 26.4%. Vinyl record sales, which I thought was really coming back among all the hipsters, down 26.1%. Total album sales of all different makes and types, down 27.4%. Eric Alper is a music writer his Twitter handle, which I love. I say this every time he's on, he lists himself as a shameless idealist, which I think is the thing we should all have on our Twitter handle. Eric, thanks for doing this today.
3: (laughs) Great. So leave it up to me to try to come up with some rosy numbers out of those ones, eh?
0: Man, I mean, look, when I read those, I I know we can dive deep and we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time on this, but at the surface, when you first look at those numbers, it sounds like we've abandoned music.
3: Yeah. I, and then I'll give you another number that's completely going to blow you away, which is that music sales around the world were up 14.5% from last year in 2019 to 2018. So while you can separate things like, well, nobody's really buying CDs anymore, nobody's buying digital downloads anymore, the music streaming is saving the music industry big time. And as much as you and I and other people love to talk about vinyl records, it's really only worth like 5 to 8% of the, the world music market. So it wasn't going to save really anything. Although, you know, a couple hundred million dollars in your coffers is, is nothing to, uh, uh, you know, nothing to, to shoo around about. But yeah, those numbers are really scary when you break it down. But more and more artists are making more and more money from the music industry than ever before in fact spotify just came out and they said that over a hundred thousand artists last year made over a hundred thousand dollars um and that's up almost 60 65 percent so what you end up is the top one percent is actually becoming the top five percent um of money making but It all depends on how you look at those numbers. But yeah, I think any way you kind of take a look at it, I think we're now safely saying that we're living in a streaming world.
0: Well, okay, let's go to the numbers that you just put out there then, because we've got all these numbers that I read that say that buying albums, again, whether it's digital or whether it's something tangible, a CD or a record or whatever, that is way down the streaming, as you point out, for and not just streaming, because even the digital... Track sales are down. It's the buying things like Apple Music or Spotify, subscribing to those. They are up. I mean, it, it certainly says something about um, how we want to get our music, but also I think is our willingness or not to pay for individual songs or individual albums.
3: Yeah, exactly. So just to put it in perspective, so total revenues last year climbed to 20 20- just a hair over twenty billion dollars. That is a rise of eight point two percent year by year, driving that growth with a twenty three percent jump in streaming revenue uh, services, which is about eleven billion dollars or so. Out of that, streaming counts for about fifty five, fifty six percent of all revenue, and then the physical side of of all of that fits in, you know, the other the other forty percent, forty five percent, give or take. But when you go year by year. Right now, from August to August last year, it's no surprise that music is down. And a big reason is as much as we've all been home, stuck in our houses or apartments during COVID and during isolation, the music industry has had to fend for itself against Netflix and other TV and movie streaming services, and especially with the new edition with Disney Plus on the scene. The music world is in competition with everything right now it's in competition with going for walks it's competition (laughs) with reading books as opposed to in a normal year a lot of these artists that would be demanding and commanding our attention, they'd be going off on tours, they'd be selling out arenas around the world, they'd be selling merchandise and CD and vinyl um, directly, and the record stores would actually be open enough for people to buy this stuff. Don't forget, too, for almost three months, Amazon was not shipping any music because they didn't deem it as an essential item. It was shipping a lot of masks, It was shipping a lot of hand sanitizers. So a lot of those non-essential items weren't allowed to be shipped by Amazon or by Walmart. So that's where you have to take into consideration as well. But I think any way you look at it, though, um, music is... I I, I think music is still making a lot of people a lot of money. And I think, like most businesses, these four months, five months, are just going to be a total write-off that nobody ever wants to remember again.
0: I I didn't know, I, I, I didn't even realize that about Amazon not doing it. It makes sense, of course, that the stores are closed and you couldn't go out and buy them. So yeah, it makes, when you put it all together, it makes some sense why the tangible album sales have plummeted off the edge of the cliff. Again, I go back though to my, the surprise then even then with the digital, the individual digital sales. So so people are still, as I said a moment ago, and as you've said, willing to pay for a service that will give them basically unlimited music. Yeah. But we don't seem to want to pay any more, or at least a lot fewer of us want to pay to buy a specific album or a specific song. And I guess that makes some sense. If you can get it for nine bucks a month, yeah. along with every other song known to man, why am I paying nine bucks to buy your album?
3: Yeah, and you're exactly right. And and it took this long for this to happen. If you, Even if you go country by country, Canada is always a little bit behind when it comes to technology. There aren't a, a lot of places that don't have high-speed internet, uh, but there certainly are hundreds of thousands of people in this country that don't. And that affects the way that you can actually stream music and television and movies. So that's a consideration as well. Um, but you end up with with the with with the general population in Canada, especially in America, where I think we're all used to streaming services now, I think we're all okay putting our credit card through uh, through some website, knowing that it's not going to get hacked. And sometimes it reaches a little bit of point of a tipping point for that to happen. Netflix revenues keep going up and up and up, and you would think, well, who else is? new. Well, it turned out that's not the younger demographic, it's actually the older demographic that's finally get on board with cutting oh. the cord to cable services. And we're seeing that in music as well. Although, when you break it down by genre true, the jazz artists, the folk artists, the classical musical orchestras, um, the blues artists, they still sell way more physical copies of their CD, even through their own website, than maybe they would on on Spotify. They're just not really used to hearing music that they long held in their physical hands for 40 or 50 years in some cases.
0: Uh, yeah, and when you say that everybody is now much more comfortable putting their credit card into a website, I agree, unless it's nigerianprince.com, <laughs> uh, then I would still advise you to not do that one.
3: Don't do that. Even if somebody says that, hello, I'm Prince. It's a yeah, never even if Prince I've got, got a trillion
0: dollars. <laughs> yeah, I've got a trillion dollars to put in your bank account for good for safekeeping. Um, the other part about this then, and and I think this is broader because, because what we're seeing here, I think again, if we're looking at this, this, this whole playing field of, we want. Again, if I'm reading into this, we want more for less. We want to get all the songs with a streaming service but not have to pay as much, and we don't want to buy the albums. I think we're seeing this. This is this is just reflective in all kinds of things. We see this with people wanting to stream movies online and get them for free and find them cheap, or if you can pirate them somewhere. We, we see it with people trying to find sports events that you're supposed to be pay-per-view, that if we can find it for free. We have, we've got a society that's become very accustomed to and very expecting, I think, that you can find something and not have to pay for it. And even the streaming service, even if you're going to pay your nine bucks a month or whatever for Apple music, you kind of forget you're paying for it. You, you do it once and then you forget it. It fits in with that, that thought process that I'm getting this for free almost.
3: Yeah. I, I, and the younger generation of eight to 15 to two, the 18-year-old, those people that are going to go to university in the next couple of years, they don't think about piracy. In fact, they're one of the lowest demographics when it comes to piracy, partly because, A, they're still living at home and their parents are, pre- are paying for their streaming services. But, you know, depending on w- who you are, we were the generation that used Napster And all of these illegal downloading sites, because we felt we had to stick it to the record labels that were charging $27 for a CD for one real good song. Now, Mm -hmm. when I say we, I don't mean you or I. Mm -hmm. I just mean, but, you know, the people between the ages of 35 and 50 who grew up with the fact that, well, I could spend a little bit more downloading time downloading the complete collection of Dave Matthews band CDs, or I can pay... $400 $400 for all 15 albums in the physical record store, and people just weren't having that. But that led to the the invention of the iTunes breaking up the songs, which the, the, the record labels hated the idea at first. There was no way that they felt that it was a good idea to start breaking up the ability that you can purchase songs rather than the full album completely. And then that led to what we're seeing now with Napster and, and, and Deezer and Tidal and Spotify and the and leg- legitimate sites now. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that kind of phased out. But I agree. I think that the, the music business was hit harder than any other style of entertainment when it came to the illegal downloading sites.
0: There are, I I guarantee you right now, Eric, as you and I talk, there are some people listening whose eyes have glassed over, not that you're not fascinating or I'm not fascinating, hopefully, but they hear Napster and all these things and they are of an age that this was just not part of the discussion. They have no idea what we're talking about (laughs) and I'm not, I am not eager to kill them all off, but I think that probably when we're going to reach a point before That long, 20 years maybe from now, 30 years from now, that the people who grew up with tangible physical music in their hands are going to be gone or almost gone. And I wonder if the CD will even still be produced or if records, if they'll even bother anymore because it costs something to do that and you can get the the other way for way, way cheaper.
3: Yeah, you know, there's not too many generations that love the physical product in the same way the generation that came before them it's why you have about a 20 year 25 year shelf life of any physical format books don't have that we've had books for centuries vinyl records definitely but even with vinyl records in the 1920s and 30s and 40s there are only one song per side and you have to play it at 78 rpm as opposed to the 33 and a third rpm that we know now um the long-playing album Has lasted since around 1965 to now. But they're in between then and now. There was the eight track tape, there were the cassettes, there were the mini discs, the CDs, the three inch CD. There were a ton of different available options. And if you ever want to feel old, just go and post a photo of the iPod and see how Hmm, many people installed. Yeah. See how that was like only 15 years ago. And yet it seems like a lifetime ago where it's like, what do you mean you can take all the music in your pocket? Well, so can we now through Spotify. We just don't have to buy anything. It's just the one a la carte.
0: Yeah, and, and you know what? You bring up a good point because I, I was trying to think even as you were talking, is there a form of media? Movies? We don't really want DVDs or Blu-ray anymore. Those are, you know, you tell someone you got a DVD and they're like, well, that's really inconvenient to have to actually put a thing into a machine and press play. I just want to press play. You want to cut out the middleman there. We, We want our movies on digital. We want our music on digital. We now want our books on Kobo. We want our newspapers online. We want, I mean, anything entertainment, it seems we don't want a physical thing at all. We just want the digital and the convenience of having it all on our phone.
3: Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, there are certain people out there who will claim that you never really owned a physical item as much as you think you did. The vinyl record was just a physical piece. The actual music was inside the groove. The iPod was really never a physical thing. It was all a bunch of ones and zeros. How you carried the music meant really nothing. It was your own personal experience that was attached to it. So You know, the hard drive is another physical item. As much as you and I want to talk about digital and streaming, our TV has now become that digital carrier of the content that we want inside. What's going to be fascinating isn't so much to me about where the physical versus the digital goes in five or ten years. It's who's going to make the decision to have one price on your phone bill or on your telecommunication bill wherever it may be that you now buy everything because i think consumers are going to want to not get so fed up of i'm paying 14 different companies for 14 different sets of channels to watch you know 400 different movies i think that sooner or later the choice is going to blow people's mind a little bit and they're going to say look there's one google there's one Apple, there's one Microsoft, there's one iPhone. All I need is one place to go to all my stuff and I'm willing to pay 500 bucks a month for that. And if that price seems so high, you probably haven't taken a look at your cable bill recently.
0: Yeah, yeah that is true. I, and I, as I said that a moment ago it did dawn on me how lazy have we become that putting a dvd into a dvd player is now considered too onerous to watch that that is just really inconvenient we have we have become the peak of of laziness at this point eric alper always love having you on thanks for taking some time today
3: great so i mean i have to get off my couch now
0: well, unless, you know, if you have a DVD to flip, yeah, or you don't know, flip a DVD. And look, that's how old. I flip a DVD. There are two sided DVDs, just for the record, but yes. Right. Eric Alper, sure. always appreciate it. Thanks for this.
3: Thanks for having
1: me. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.